Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 44 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, A Plot Thwarted by God's Providence, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, this is a remarkable passage of Scripture in which some extremely dedicated Jewish enemies of the gospel bind themselves with a solemn covenant oath to not eat anything until they've assassinated Paul. Uh, This is a very serious thing, and it also gives us a sense into the commitment that I think Satan had to shut Paul down and then the servants uh, that he had available to do so. But the whole thing's thwarted, believe it or not, by a nephew who comes up out of nowhere. It's really, in the end, kind of humorous how God can just move his little finger, or a nephew in this case, to thwart the plot and protect Paul. So the fundamental issue here is Paul is indestructible, cannot be killed until God is finished with him. And so we're going to walk through that today. Let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 23, verses 12 through 35. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready two hundred soldiers, with seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen, to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency, the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. 
When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Andy, when did this plot happen relative to Paul's trial before the Sanhedrin? And what does verse 12 teach us about the way Paul's enemies felt about him? Well, it happened before his trial. Uh, they were plotting to um, uh, to kill him on on way to the trial, and they they controlled that whole area. That was their home home turf, so they could manipulate things. They could get all of that uh, done in a certain way, and so everything was well thought out and would have worked, except that God moved in this in this nephew, as we uh, mentioned at the beginning. So this is a very serious matter, and Paul knows it because later, when he's down in Caesarea, the Jews come down from Jerusalem and try to persuade. Um, the governor to bring Paul back up to Jerusalem and they're planning to kill him on the way because that's just their home turf. So this happened right before his trial before the Sanhedrin. Why did the conspirators bind themselves with such a serious oath not to eat or drink anything until they had assassinated Paul? Well, it's a measure of their commitment. It's a measure of their hatred for Paul. And again, I'm going to go beyond the physical realm into the spiritual realm. It's a measure of the hatred that Satan and his demons have uh, for Paul. I, I mentioned to you right before we started this, uh, this podcast that I had this image some time ago actually contemplating this very passage. Uh, at the at the level of commitment Satan had and the demons had to taking Paul out. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, you used to go to the post office and you'd have on the bulletin board a list of maybe the FBI's t- top 10 most wanted in, in America that were fugitives from justice. And, you know, so they were eliciting aid from the United States to try to track these 10 individuals down. I imagine on the satanic post office wall, all 10 pictures would be Saul of Tarsus or mm. the Apostle Paul. Whatever we can do to kill this man, we're going to. So at the human level, their uh, uh, determination is measured by the seriousness of this commitment to not eat or drink anything. Now, this is their top priority to assassinate. And there's 40 of them. They're ready to kill him. Andy, you've alluded to this a little bit in the introduction even to this episode, but what does the fact that this level of human commitment failed to achieve its goal teach us about the sovereignty of God? Yeah, we're, we mentioned providence. Uh, providence is just the doctrine that nothing happens on earth or in the universe apart from the will of God. Even a sparrow doesn't fall, fall to the ground apart from the will of God. And, and you know, Jesus actually gave that sparrow teaching, et cetera, in the context of the spread of the gospel, uh, the commissioning of the, ten, uh, the 12 uh, apostles to go out two by two in Matthew 10 to take the the gospel forward. And he said, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Uh, don't be afraid when you're arrested or brought to trial. Don't worry about anything because God controls everything. And so the idea is that God is sovereignly orchestrating events. Now, it's significant because Paul is effectively in chains or incarcerated for years after this. And so God wanted Paul in prison. He wanted him in chains uh, but he didn't want him dead. And so all of these things are orchestrated by the doctrine of providence. And sometimes providence can seem very difficult. At the end of the time that he has uh, with Felix, Felix wanting to do a favor to the Jews left Paul in prison for an additional two years of imprisonment. God could have moved his little finger and had, had Paul uh, set free, but he didn't. In this particular matter, though, he raises up a son of Paul's sister. We didn't know Paul had a sister. We didn't know Paul's sister had a son. We didn't know any of this. The nephew comes up and he, I think, overhears the plot and knows what to do. 
Now, you also mentioned the number of men who were involved in this plot. It tells us in the text that there were 40 of them, but they weren't alone. How did the conspirators involve the chief priests and elders of the Jews? And what does this teach us about those chief priests and elders? Well, they're all a part of it. They're all serving serving Satan. Uh, and so— uh, it's very, very plain when Jesus says the same thing in John 8, uh, you are of your father the devil. They're serving their father the devil. And so even though they seem to be righteous and holy and all that, they're not. They're corrupt. And Paul knows very, very well because he served the same Sanhedrin in his efforts to drag off men and women who are followers of Christ. And he was a servant of Satan in those earlier days. So they're all part of this plot. Now, 40 men to kill one very insignificant small man. I don't think Paul was Samson or whatever, like he's going to take out a thousand hmm. Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Uh, he's just a simple, um, small, I think physically small tradition tells us man. And they think 40 are going to be needed to kill him. Uh, but they, uh, they underestimate even then because um, – the commander gets uh, close to 500 Roman soldiers and cavalrymen to protect him, so they don't have enough men. So we have the plot described then in verses 12 through 15, but it's uncovered in verses 16 through 22. What did Paul do when he heard what his nephew was telling him? Yeah, Paul knew what to do, and the nephew knew what to do. If you look at at the nephew, he's not a little kid. He's he's wise enough to know what to do, and the and the commander trusts him to keep his mouth shut because if he says anything, that whole thing's up at that point, and there's going to be much more of a difficulty. So he talks to Paul, and Paul um, knows what to do, which is to reach out to uh, one of the centurions. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this uh, young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. And I think this already speaks well of Paul's reputation among the centurions. By the way, I don't actually think there are any bad centurions in the New Testament. I think hmm. they're all good guys. I don't know what it is. I, I, I may be wrong, but it's just like there's a centurion at the foot of Jesus' cross, you know, um, who says truly this man was the son of God. Uh, I don't know, just a lot of good centurions hmm. in, the, in, the, in the Bible. But this, uh, it was a good relationship that Paul had built. And he knew that this centurion that he had uh, called him. Centurion means a commander of a hundred men, so he's a you know a significant uh, leader in the Roman army. Uh, will know what to do with the nephew. Verse eighteen says that he took him and brought him to the tribune, mm -hmm. uh, and they basically unfold the plot that's been laid out. Mm -hmm. How did the commander respond to Paul's nephew, and and what does mm -hmm. this show us about the commander as well as what you mentioned before, sure. Paul's reputation among the Romans? Yeah, everyone everyone had to play their part properly. Imagine if he had been like the the the, uh, uh, the governor in um, in Acts 18 who couldn't care less. I mean, he just didn't have the time of day to give it anybody on this stuff. Well, this this uh, tribune was not like that. He took it very seriously. And he's, he's gentle with him. He takes him by the hand and draws him off to the side and, and says, you know, what do you have to tell me? And, um, you know, he's He's, uh, he deals with them very carefully, and then he knows exactly what to do. So that's part of, of uh, providence. It's part of God's sovereign plan to save Paul's life. If any aspect of this falls apart, then uh, Paul's, going, Paul's a dead man at this point. So uh, the fact that the nephew didn't handle it rightly, the fact that Paul knew what to do, the fact that the centurion knew what to do, the tribune knew what to do, uh, all of it was essential to, um, to saving Paul's life. 
What do we learn about the plot from the nephew? Do we learn any more information as he unfolds this uh, before the Tribune? Yeah, the whole you get a sense of the details of the plot, and um, you know, Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter two of of Satan, we're not unaware of his schemes. So I think about a scheme being a diabolical plot. It's got certain elements and aspects to it. So uh, he says to him, "Look, uh, the Sanhedrin, the the the." Chief priests are going to ask you for permission to to have some time with Paul to ask more questions about him and to gain more accurate information. But the whole thing's a pretext. They have no desire for that. They're in on the plot. En route, he's going to be killed. And so we see more details of this kind of thing. And Paul's aware of this later, as I mentioned, later in the book of Acts, when he's in Caesarea and they petition um, – uh, the the governor at that point to bring Paul back up to Jerusalem. He says, same thing's going to happen. En route, I'm going to be killed. That's when, as we'll see later in the book of Acts, he makes his direct appeal mm. to Caesar. That's why he end, ends up in Rome. So we can see the larger elements of the plan of God here. So Satan uncovers his methodology here, and Paul says, look, any journey I make to the Sanhedrin is, is uh, the walk of a dead man. And mm -hmm. so I'm not going there at all. They are they they own that area. They're going to try to kill me, uh, and so it all leads to God's plan to to deliver Paul to Rome. What advice did the commander give to the nephew in verse 22, and what was the reason for it? He said, "Don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. So don't talk to anyone about this, uh, because that would change everything. You know, they're re reshuffling the deck at that point. They'll come up with another plan. They're not going to give up on it." And so just keep the th whole thing quiet. Let them go through with their plan. And as they you know, come to, to make the, uh, the direct appeal to me to have Paul delivered to the Sanhedrin, I'm going to tell them he's not even here. He's, he's gone. And so the whole thing will fall apart. Andy, why did the commander want Paul transferred from Jerusalem to Caesarea? Well, I just think that was a Roman base. They had much more power and strength there. Uh, he's going to be protected better there. And, you know, it's it, it's going to it's going to come with the letter that he writes saying, hey, look, this this guy is a focal point of the of the Jews. They want to kill him. And so they're going to protect him and keep him safe. So uh, that's why he wants him down in Caesarea. Now, one thing that was striking, even as I was reading this a few moments ago, was the number of soldiers that the commander dispatched to protect Paul. We talked about the number that they think it's going to take to kill him, but this number is even more astounding. What should we make of the number of soldiers the commander dispatched to protect Paul? First of all, <laughs> this is Rome. We're dealing with Rome here. This is the almost 500 Roman uh, soldiers, military individuals, cavalrymen, footmen, everything. This is how they conquered the world. They don't mess around. Hmm. And so, you know, Daniel has the image of a fourth beast that can't even be described that just crushes everything. There's, you know, in the in the statue in, in, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's iron. It can't be broken. And so fundamentally, it's the strongest empire the world has ever seen. And it's because they they deal with information properly. They are organized. They don't mess around. And so we see almost 500 Roman fighting men against 40 very hungry Jews. <laughs> so at this point, it's like you have no, no chance. Mm. And, you know, it's ultimately going to lead to Masada and to the destruction of the Roman of the, uh, of the Jewish temple in AD 70. Uh, Rome doesn't lose, basically, and they won't lose for another half a, half a millennium. So uh, you just cannot defeat them. 
So that's what I get out of that. And also uh, just uh, how impossible it would be at this point to kill Paul. They, they thought that they were so uh, clever with their scheme, but they're coming up against uh, uh, superior information and superior organization, superior military strength, and they lose. In verses 26 through 30, we have recorded this letter that was written. What is the letter that the commander, Claudius Lysias, wrote to Governor Felix teach us about Paul, the Jews, and the Romans? Okay, well, this is what it says. Uh, Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Let me pause and say that's a lie. He learned it after the fact while he had stretched him out and was about to beat him, but he didn't mention that. Anyway, let's keep going. <laughs> I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found out the, that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. Now, I contend that the last third of the book of Acts is at least in part Luke's attempt to get Caesar accurate information about Paul, how he has done nothing worthy of imprisonment. They mm. say it again and again. It's not the first time or the last time, I should say, that this uh, charge of, of innocence or this, uh, this statement of innocence will be written uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that uh, letter tells us he's innocent. He hasn't done anything that's a threat to Rome, uh, but the Jews are dedicated to kill him and he therefore should be protected. How do you think Luke, in writing the book of Acts, got a hold of the letter that was written? And how does this shed light on Luke's historical approach in writing this down for us? Well, if we look at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, because he wrote two volumes, Luke and Acts, you look at the beginning of that, he said, having investigated everything carefully, most excellent Theophilus, I thought to write an orderly account for you. So he just did the work of a, of a careful historian, and God wanted him to have that information, so he got a copy of the letter somehow. So uh, he just did the, the careful work of a, of a historian and got a copy of what was actually uh, written. Obviously, God could have told and what the content of the letter uh, was directly by revelation, but that's not his usual way. He says, having investigated everything carefully. So he got a, a copy of the letter, amazingly. Hmm. Now, if Claudius Lysias felt that Paul had done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment, as we learn in verse 29, why was Paul still being held? And what do we learn from that about Roman justice? Well, it's very pragmatic and self-serving. Um, so they... Paul isn't as important as keeping peace with the Jewish nation as a whole. So they want to find out what's the best way to achieve their ends. And their ends aren't necessarily absolute justice, but their ends are an appearance of Roman justice, but self-serving. And so that's why I said, as I mentioned, that Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, left Paul in prison. So he's appeasing them. It's the reason that Pontius Pilate crucified Jesus. He said again and again, he's innocent. Well, then what are you beating him for? He's innocent. Then why don't you release him? Well, he's innocent. Then why did you crucify him? I think that shows so-called Roman justice. So there's at least an appearance of a due process, an appearance of witnesses and all that. But the fact of the matter is Roman justice, part of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was self-serving. They wanted people pacified. Mm. They wanted people quiet under their rule. They didn't care about absolute justice. They cared about people being quiet. So I think that's what we learned. 
How did Paul finally arrive at Caesarea, and what happened when he got there at the conclusion of this chapter? Okay, so they, he's there under uh, intense guard, and, and the, the issue there is not so that Paul wouldn't escape, but that he would be protected. And so they bring him down in steps to Antipatris, and then eventually to Caesarea, comes into detachments. It's interesting just how Luke does his work. He says, look, the soldiers went back, because it's a long way to walk, but the cavalry goes on, Paul's got a mount of his own. You know, all this, it's just these details, you're like, interesting, why would the Holy Spirit want us to know all these things. But I think all these details, though we can't see immediately the purpose, it colors it in and helps us to realize this is history. This is not a myth. Mm. This actually happened. This is how the Romans did business. And so I think it, it lends uh, authenticity to everything that, uh, that, that Luke wrote and everything that's written in the New Testament. You know, even as we began speaking of God's providence, it's noteworthy that God cares about these details. These mm -hmm. things were all a part of God's plan yeah. to get Paul exactly where he wanted him so that he would have the opportunity to testify to the gospel as mm -hmm. God stood by him. Uh, even as others would leave his side. Right, and he also, he also the detail, he says, where, where are you from? He reads the letter, he's from Cilicia, and says, all right, you know, I, I get it. And it's just, you see this process, this intelligent process by the Romans, but again, self-serving, not absolutely just. Um, but we see that's how the Romans did business. And, and he says, all right, you know, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in, in Herod's palace. And my guess is that Paul's not under any tremendous distress here. It's a it's like a house arrest, but he's not going anywhere. Andy, what final thoughts do you have for us as we've reflected on Acts 23 verses 12 through 35 today? Well, the overall theme of the book of Acts is Acts 1-8. Um, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The power of the Holy Spirit is a part of God's overall providential rule of the events on planet earth. And so the, the fact that the Holy Spirit is orchestrating the spread of the gospel in ways that are beyond our understanding. So like I said, Rome's sense of justice was self-serving. The Holy Spirit used it to get done what he wanted to get done. Paul's desire would be for his own personal freedom mm. and his ability to fellowship with Christians, to go uh, you know, and be with the brothers and sisters and to continue his teaching ministry and all that and his proclamation ministry. He wouldn't have chosen to be in prison, but God's ways are not our ways. And so I guess what I get out of this is the detailed orchestrated plan of God and God's sovereign power in carrying it out, the Holy Spirit's ability to sustain Paul through all of this, to deliver the gospel wherever it needs to go, and his orchestration of even suffering and difficulties so that the gospel can get to all the elect and they hear it and find eternal life through faith in Christ. Well, this has been episode 44 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 45, entitled Paul's Trial Before Felix, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.